0: I was about to say Galatians, but no, we're done with the book of Galatians. We're moving into the book of Exodus. And as you're turning there, I want to invite some kids that went to the mini mountain adventure with me this past summer to come up on the stage and help me give some information. So Caleb and Natalie and Trig and Daniel and Aubrielle... I think these are the ones that are here today. One of the values that we have um, in taking our kids to camp every summer is that we want to teach them God's truths. And this past summer, we taught them the heroes of the faith. And there's a lot of heroes of the faith that you may not be aware of. And so this morning, they're going to help me help you understand a lady that was a hero. And so we're going to learn this morning about a woman named Gladys Aylward. anybody ever heard of Gladys Aylward? A few of you may have heard of Gladys Aylward. So, boys and girls, who was Gladys Aylward? What country was she from? Where was she from? England. England. Okay, she was from England. And what was she? She was a missionary to China. She was a missionary to where? China. China. Okay, she was a missionary to China in the 1930s. So, in 1938, there was civil war between Japan and China, and these bombs came in on Japanese planes, and they bombed the village that she was in, and so they had to evacuate. And so what did Gladys Elward, the single woman, how many orphans did she take with her? A hundred hundred orphans she took with her across the mountains and the valleys of China. And they got to the Yellow River, and what happened at the Yellow River? What, What could they not do? They couldn't cross because it was too deep. What did they do when they got to the Yellow River? What did the boys and girls ask Gladys? Can we pray? And so the boys and girls and Gladys began to pray. And then after they prayed, what did they do? They did what? They sang. They started singing. And as they started singing, um, some Chinese boats heard them and came and got them across the river. And eventually, they got how many kids again? One lady taking 100 kids through the mountains and valleys of China. How many days did they go? 28 days. How many miles? 100 miles. So give these boys and girls a hand because they remembered a lot of facts from Gladys Elwood. Thanks, guys and girls. You guys can go back to your seats. Can you imagine one single lady taking 100 orphans that were sick? and tired, without food and water many times. She got shot at one point during that journey because she crossed enemy lines, and so she ended up taking care of these kids and herself. Can you imagine one single lady taking 100 orphans, 100 miles for 28 days through the mountains of China? That is an amazing story of God's grace where he showed forth his power. Now I want you to think about Moses for a moment. It wasn't 28 days and it wasn't 100 orphans. It was probably 2 or 3 million Israelites for 40 years, wandering through the wilderness. And what God did in the life of the Israelites and Moses during the Exodus is also an amazing story of God's outstretched arm of power and grace. So today we begin the book of Exodus. Exodus means exit, departure, to leave. They left Egypt. And so this morning, before we actually begin to dive into the book of Exodus, what today is going to do, today is going to set an overview. Today's going to set some groundwork. Today's going to give you a lot of the background to the book. We're going to look at some major themes and things like that. And so what I want to do this morning is just help us get our bearings straight. And so let's first of all talk about the historical context. When did the Exodus take place? What's going on? What's the situation in the nation of Israel at that point in time? And so if you've got your Bible open to Exodus chapter 1, let's just read verses 1 through Seven, because this is how the book of Exodus begins, and it tells us the historical setting of what's going on. So Exodus 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Okay, those are the twelve tribes of Israel. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so Exodus begins where Genesis leaves off. How does Genesis end? Genesis ends with the, the brothers of Joseph in Egypt... Jacob, their dad, has died, and Joseph is taking care of them. And the Bible says there's 70 of them. 70 brothers, that's the 12 tribes of Israel, just a small band of people. And now, there's probably 3 million of them. But God gave a prophecy to Abraham many years early, hundreds of years earlier, about what the Israelites would face in Egypt. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God puts Abraham in a deep sleep, God reveals this to him in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. The Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. "'They'll be exiles. "'They'll be visitors in a land that is not theirs, Egypt. "'They will be servants there. "'They will be slaves. "'They will be afflicted for 400 years.'" But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's a direct prophecy about what would happen to the Israelites in Egypt. They'd be there for 400 years. They would be afflicted by harsh taskmasters in Egypt, and then they would come out with great possessions as they came through the Red Sea. So what started out with 70 people living in Egypt has now grown to about 2 or 3 million living in Egypt They're not in the promised land. They are under slavery. They are under bondage in Egypt. So the name of our sermon series, and it'll make more sense as we go through the book of Exodus, is called Exodus from Slavery to Salvation. Because that's where the book starts, the nation of Israel in slavery. So that's the historical setting. I'm going to spend a brief amount of time on the structure of the book. It's divided into three parts, three big sections of the book of Exodus. Part one is Israel and Egypt, that's chapter 1 through chapter 13. Part two is Israel at the base of Mount Sinai receiving the law, the Ten Commandments. That's chapter 13 through chapter 24. And then part three, we may not spend as much time, that's the building of the tabernacle and all the instructions related to God's dwelling place in the tabernacle. That's in chapter 24 to the very end in chapter 40. And So just three big sections of the book of Exodus to kind of help you understand how they moved from Egypt to Mount Sinai, to the building of the tabernacle. Where I want to spend most of our time this morning is on the theological foundation or the biblical message of the book of Exodus. And if you could pinpoint one passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus that kind of encapsulates or summarizes or tells you what the entire book's about, it's in Exodus chapter 6. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, and we'll come back to this again, but this is kind of the central theme verse, the theological center, if you will, that drives the trajectory of the entire book of Exodus. Chapter 6, God is going to announce to Moses what he's going to do. So this is God speaking directly to Moses about what he's going to do. Now remember, when God is speaking here in chapter 6, the nation is still in slavery. Moses hasn't gone and delivered them yet. So this is is God announcing in his sovereignty what he's going to do. So let's read Exodus chapter 6, just three verses, 6 through 8. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. From this central passage of Scripture, we see four major themes that are going to set their trajectory for the entire book of Exodus. We're going to see these four themes repeated over and over again. So this morning, I'm just going to give them to you. Here's theme number one. God saves his people to be rescued from slavery. God saves his people to be rescued from slavery. You cannot escape the major theme that Exodus is about the mighty, outstretched hand of God rescuing or saving his people out of slavery. Notice verse 6. God's going to do three things, three strong action verbs there. He says, I will bring you, number one, out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. Number three, I will redeem you. I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem. This is all in reference to salvation that God's going to accomplish on Passover night. When they kill a spotless lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and lintels of the home, and God delivers them. God redeems them. And so substitutionary blood atonement for salvation is crucial to Exodus as well as to the rest of the Bible. You see, Israel needs to be rescued out of slavery by the outstretched arm of God. The mighty hand of God needs to rescue Israel out of bondage. Now may I remind you, We, too, were once in bondage. We, too, were once in slavery to sin, in slavery to Satan, and in slavery to death. And we, too, need to be rescued out of that slavery by the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross who died as the true Passover lamb to grant us salvation. Now, when God says consecutively these three strong words, I will deliver you, I will bring you out, I will redeem, it shows God's sovereignty and salvation because God takes the initiative to get these Israelites out. These Israelites are helpless. They're not going to dare barge into the palace of the Pharaoh and say, you've got to let us go. No, they're under harsh conditions. They're weak. They're frail. They're helpless. They're, they're, they're burdened. God has to take the initiative to bring them out And so, too, we were once helpless, we were once in bondage, and we, too, could not release ourselves from sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, here's the good news of the gospel. God did not wait for you to clean your act up in order to save you. If that's what he did he'd be waiting a long time. A very long time. While we were weak, while we were powerless, while we were ungodly, while we were hopeless, Christ saved us. Same thing with the Israelites. They were hopeless. They were in dire situation. And they were saved by the blood of the lamb. John 1:29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of God. Passover lamb. In the book of Exodus, Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us, that same language. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, over and over again, Exodus is going to point us to the need for redemption out of slavery. We're going to be reminded over and over again how God in his power did the impossible by rescuing a people in slavery and bringing them to salvation. And he's done the same with us. He's taken us out of slavery and he's delivered us to salvation and we should never get over the the great redemption that comes to the outstretched arm of God. And so Exodus is going to show us this releasing from slavery to salvation. That's theme number one. It's all over the place in Exodus. But here's theme number two. God adopts his people to be distinct and holy. God adopts his people to be distinct and holy. Look at verse 7. Look at what God says. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I'm going to take you to be my people. I'm going to adopt you to be my people. Now, go over to chapter 19 because there's another big passage of Scripture that's almost just as important. If there's another big passage of Scripture in Exodus that's probably the second or or maybe even equally important, Exodus chapter 19, 4 through 6. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to to myself. What did God say? I'm going to bring you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God says, listen, Israelites. Once I release you out of bondage, I'm bringing you to myself. I'm making you my people. And when I make you my people, and when I adopt you as my people, you're going to be holy. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be different from the world around you. You're going to be a light to the nations. You are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And God has done that to us. Why has God saved us? Ephesians 1 4 through 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless. Before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did God predestine us? Why did God adopt us? Why did God take us to himself? To make us holy and blameless. To make us a distinct people. So that we would have lives that are distinctly separate from the world around us. And, and Peter borrows from this imagery in Exodus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking to Gentiles, speaking to non-Jewish people, speaking to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the second theme Exodus is going to remind us of over and over again is that God is taking for himself a people. God is making for himself a people. God is adopting a people to be holy, to be distinct, to be separate, to be a light to the world. And it's the same with us. God has called us to be his people, to be distinct, to be holy, to be a light to the world. All right, what's theme number three? God reveals himself to his people in order to know his character and his ways. You want to know God's character and you want to know God's ways... God reveals himself to Israel in a very special way. What does verse 6 say? Go back to Exodus chapter 6. Hopefully you're back there again. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, what's the first thing out of God's mouth? I am the Lord. Verse 7, I will make you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am The Lord your God. At the end of verse 8, I am the Lord. Three times in this short passage of scripture, God says, I am the Lord. And I want you to know me as the great I am. God as the I am is paramount to the book of Exodus. How does God begin the book of Exodus when he meets Moses at the burning bush? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let me teach you a little bit of Hebrew here for a moment. The Hebrew expression I am sounds very similar to Yahweh, Lord. When you see Lord in your Bible in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, and it sounds very similar to I am. And when God says he's the I am, it doesn't just mean that God exists. That that word I am the Lord means not only does God just exist, but God not only exists, but he causes everything to exist and he sustains everything that exists because he's the only one who has no needs and exists without anybody ever having to come to his aid. He's the great I am. And not only did God redeem them, God says, I'm going to take you out of slavery, theme number one. I'm going to make you my people, you're going to be distinct, theme number two. But theme number three, God says, listen, I'm doing all this because I want you to know me. I want you to grow to know me. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I'm the great I am. I want you to know my character. I want you to know my ways. Now, God's ways are going to be revealed when he gives the law and the Ten Commandments. But God desires relationship with the Israelites. I want you to know that I am the Lord your God. One of the greatest joys we have as Christians is to grow in our knowledge of who God is. Raise your hands if you know everything. You've, that, that you're you at the point where you know everything about God that you ever wanted to know. Thank you for not raising your hand because you'd probably not be truthful. Aren't there things that you want to know more about God? Don't you want to know him more fully? Don't you want to know him more intimately? Don't you want to grow in your knowledge? That was what Paul's cry was. In Philippians 3.10, listen to what Paul said. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. That should be the heartbeat of your life. I want to know Jesus and I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. And that's what God says to the Israelites. I'm doing all this. I'm saving you out of slavery. I'm making you as my people because I want you to know me. So Exodus is going to help us know God more fully. Who is this God that we worship? Why is he the one true God? Why is he the only God? Why is he worthy of all of our worship? Well, Exodus is going to show us that he demands our ultimate allegiance. He wants to be known. And one of our greatest joys is to know him. So theme number one, from slavery to salvation. Theme number two, God's taken us to be a people, holy and distinct. Number three, God wants us to know him. He's the great I am. But here's theme number four. God dwells with his people to encourage them with his presence. They need God's presence all the way. Because in verse 8, what does God tell them? God says, I'm going to bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. God says, listen, I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to his son Isaac. I made a promise to his grandson um, Jacob. You're going to get to the promised land. You're going to dwell in the land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the interesting thing about Exodus. Do they ever get there? No. You have to get to the book of Joshua before they ever get there. So God promises them a final destination, the promised land, but the book of Exodus is not so much about them getting there, it's about him being with them in the, in the, in the, along, along the way of the journey. And how does God promise his presence? God promises his presence in the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a portable tent that they erected where God's glory rested, where God's presence was with them. And they often said one time to God, if your presence is not with us, we don't even want to go into the promised land. It's not, it doesn't mean anything if, if your presence is not with us. So God promised to be with them. I will be with you. You're going to know my presence. You're going to see my presence visibly in a pillar of, of smoke, in a pillar of fire. You're going to see my presence visibly when, when the cloud comes on the mountain. You're going to see my presence visibly shining on the, the, the Shekinah glory coming down upon the tabernacle. I'm going to be with you in the tabernacle. Now, here's the point. We have a final destination too. Our destination is the promised land. It's called heaven. But until we get there, where are we? We're in the wilderness just like the Israelites are. And until we get to heaven, what does God promise us? God promises us his his presence to encourage us, to be with us. We need to know that he's the great I am who saves his people, who adopts his people, who wants his people to know him, and who dwells with his people. Okay, so those are the four main theological themes. Let me ask a very simple question. This book centers on one of the most important persons in the Old Testament. So who are the main characters of Exodus? And before you answer that, let me help you. Okay, we would all say, Moses! And you'd be right. Do you guys know what Moses' name means? Very interesting. Moses' name means drawn from water. Water plays a huge role in the book of Exodus. How was Moses found? He was drawn out of water floating down the Nile River. When Moses led the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, what happened? There was a parting of water. When Moses hit the rock, what came out? Water. Thank you. Water is a major theme, all surrounded by Moses. But see, here's the issue, and we'll see this over and over again. Moses was a covenant mediator who led the people. God called Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. Moses was a deliverer. In the book of Exodus, Moses is a deliverer. Moses was called and commissioned to, to preach to the people, Moses was a preacher. He was proclaiming God's word. Moses was called to represent and pray for the people. Moses was an intercessor. He he prayed for the people. He represented the people. People couldn't go directly to God. He was also a leader. He led the people into the promised land. So he's a preacher. He's a leader. He's an intercessor. He's a deliverer. So in a sense, Moses was the great deliverer, the great preacher, the great prayer, the great intercessor, the great leader. The greatest leader the Old Testament has ever seen. The greatest preacher the Old Testament's ever seen. But yet, there's going to be somebody better than Moses. A greater leader. A greater deliverer. A greater preacher. A greater prophet. A greater intercessor. Someone that's better than Moses. As great as Moses was. And the writer of Hebrews tells us the identity of who's the better Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, 3 through 6. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was just a servant. Jesus is the son. Jesus is a better preacher. Jesus is the better deliverer. Jesus is the better leader. Jesus is the better intercessor than Moses ever was. And Moses even knew that, because in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses spoke better than he knew. Who's the greater prophet that would rise that would be like Moses, but greater? Well, Peter tells us in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, when he quotes this passage in Deuteronomy, that it's none other than Jesus Christ himself. Moses was merely a servant. Jesus was the builder. Jesus is the son. So, who's the main character of the book of Exodus? It's not Moses. It's Jesus. You think, well, I never saw Jesus in the Old Testament. What I want you to do now is turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. How does the New Testament start? Well, you say it starts with the book of Matthew. I'm going to lay for you a case in the time we have remaining here this morning that Matthew, who starts the New Testament, wants you, drives you, leads you to read the book of Exodus with Jesus as the main character. So as we read the book of Exodus, I'm not going to be saying, fix your eyes on Moses. I'm going to be saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the greater Moses. Moses was simply a servant. Moses failed. Moses sinned. Jesus is the greater because he's actually the son. Now, in Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, who's the firstborn son of God? You may immediately think, well, it's got to be Jesus. Yes, but before Jesus comes on the scene in the Old Testament, who's the firstborn son of God? The nation of Israel. Okay. As Matthew starts, who's the firstborn son of God? Matthew 1:1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You go down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, was born. And where did Jesus go after he was born? He went down to Egypt. And he came out of Egypt. The firstborn son came out of Egypt. Who's who's God's firstborn son? Israel. Where did they come out of? Egypt. Who's God's firstborn son? Jesus. Where did he come out of? He came out of Egypt. Go to chapter 2, verses 13. And Matthew's doing this purposefully. Matthew's driving you back to Exodus to show you that Jesus is the greater Moses. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt... And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt God called Israel his son. Out of Egypt God called his firstborn son Jesus. Okay, let me ask you a question. We haven't read the book of Exodus yet, but what happens to the nation of Israel when they come out of Egypt? What's the first thing they go through on the night of Passover? What do they pass through? The what? They pass through water. What's the first thing that happens to Jesus before he starts his public ministry? He goes through the waters of baptism. Baptism. Chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes out of Egypt and goes to the waters of baptism. The nation of Israel goes out of Egypt, goes to the waters of the Red Sea. Where does the nation of Israel go after they go through the Red Sea? They go into the wilderness. Where does Jesus immediately go after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness. For how many days? Forty days. How many days does Israel go there? Forty years. Okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What was the situation of the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness? Did they have food? No, they did not. God provided manna so they would not live by bread alone, but by every word that would come from God. Now, what was Jesus' second temptation? That the devil tempted him. Verse 5. The devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You're not going to test the Lord in the wilderness. What did the nation of Israel do over and over again in the wilderness? Put the Lord to the test. Put the Lord to the test. Israel is always putting the Lord to the test in the wilderness. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, what's the third and final temptation that Jesus has in the wilderness? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will what? Fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall not bow down and worship false worship. What happens to the nation of Israel, the greatest travesty in the book of Exodus? The golden calf. They fall down in the wilderness, and they worship a pagan God. Jesus will not bow down and worship Satan. You see, here's the story of the book of Exodus. God's firstborn son, Israel, fails time and time again. They need rescuing. They're in the wilderness. They put God to the test. They bow down and worship falsely. Israel's firstborn son fails at every point. And yet, how does the New Testament open? The true firstborn son succeeds at every point. He doesn't need to be delivered. He's the deliverer. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He passed the test in the wilderness, and he emerged as the greater Moses who ascended the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. Israel failed. Jesus succeeds. Israel needs a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. That's why Matthew 121 says this. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. What's he going to do? He will save his people from their sins. Think about our four major themes that we just talked about. Salvation. God redeems a people with his outstretched hand by the blood of the lamb. Who's that about? Ultimately, Jesus as the Passover lamb, whose outstretched arms on the cross have redeemed a people. What's the second theme? God has adopted us to be a holy people. God has taken us for himself. Okay, for us, what's the only way you can be adopted into God's family? What's the only way you can be taken for God? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Third, what did did God say? I want you to know that I am the I am. What did Jesus say all throughout his earthly ministry? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the great I am. What's the fourth theme that we see in the book of Exodus? Exodus. God promises to dwell with his people in a tabernacle. Well, how does John describe Jesus coming? John 14, 6. I'm sorry, John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt. In the original language, that word dwelt means Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. So who's the main character of Exodus? Is it a Passover lamb? No, it's Jesus. Is it the great I am? Yes, it's Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is it the tabernacle? Yes, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. We read the book of Exodus not looking for Moses, not looking for Pharaoh, not even looking at the Israelites. We look at the book of Exodus looking for Jesus. And so here's the point. Exodus is not just some far-off story told thousands of years ago with some cool characters and cool stories. Yes, it will have that. Exodus is your story. You are part of the Exodus because you need salvation. You need to know that the Lord your God is your God. You need to be holy and distinct, and you need to have that intimate relationship with God where he says, I want you to know me as the great I am. And ultimately, our final destination is the promised land, heaven. And God promises to guide us until we get there. So as we read the book of Exodus, fundamentally, it is about Jesus. So here's my question for you. Are you ready to go on the journey of a lifetime through the book of Exodus with our eyes fixed on Jesus? You ready to do it? Amen. Well, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to give us grace as we begin this journey together. Father, we come into this place knowing how weak we are, knowing how helpless we are, knowing that at one point we bondage to Satan. We were in bondage to sin. And Jesus, how you've rescued us through your blood, through your cross. And Jesus, you are the great I Am. And God, we want to know you more deeply. We want to know your ways and your character. And we want your presence. And so as we go through the book of Exodus, may it not just be a adventurous story that we read about with miraculous events, but Lord, every step of the way, would we see ourselves in this story and our need for the greater Moses, our need for Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the true deliverer, the true intercessor, the true leader, the true tabernacle. Lord Jesus, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. May we leave today with hearts encouraged because we've seen you high and lifted up. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Amen. If you are here this morning and you have questions,